Well, church, we are diving into a new series this morning, and I am pretty excited about it. I'm always excited when we get to the, the, or the beginning of a series. We're going to be in the book of Esther, and our series is called Unexpected, Expected Deliverance. Unexpected, Expected Deliverance. Because in this book of Esther, we are going to be asking the question, where is God? Where is God? Hasn't He promised deliverance? Don't we expect God to deliver us? But as we'll see, that deliverance is often unexpected. In our day, we may be wondering, God, where are you in the midst of just rampant moral decline all around us? Even this month, as you look at the wider culture and the things that the wider culture celebrates, especially Pride Month, you wonder, God, where are you? There's growing tension in different aspects and segments of society. Or even maybe personally, you may be wondering in your life, God, where are you? I'm struggling here. I feel like I'm drowning. God, where are you? I keep running into the same problems in work and family. In my own walk with you, Lord, where are you? Maybe you've had tragedy happen, or maybe you've had just slight discomfort. Either way, we cry out, God, where are you? But God promises us deliverance, but His deliverance often comes in unexpected ways. He shows up in unexpected ways. I want to talk very briefly about this book as a whole in Esther. The key aspect of Esther, and this is a key feature, not a bug, the key feature is that God is not mentioned. In the entire Bible... It is the only book where God is not mentioned. So is God present in the book of Esther? Absolutely. He is there. The author intends for us to understand that God is indeed working. He's there. But also Esther can be tricky because how in the world is Esther supposed to point us to Jesus? Jesus says that all of the scriptures are about him. So when we come to the book of Esther, and God isn't referenced, much less Jesus or a Davidic king, well, how is it about Him? I hope as we walk through the series, both today and uh, over the summer, you'll see that Jesus is indeed present. God is indeed present. This book is set in uh, the 5th uh, the, the century B.C., Rewind to the 6th century B.C., God's people were exiled from the Promised Land. The kingdom of Babylon came in and conquered Judah. And God's people were taken up out of the land, or at least the leading people of the land, were removed from Judah and Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. And there they stayed in exile, most of them, until 539, when the Persian Empire came and conquered the Babylonian Empire. So the Persians destroyed the Babylonians, and kind of as a way to gain favor with the people that the Babylonians had conquered, they said, hey, we're going to let people go home. You're no longer going to be displaced. So a handful of Jews who were living in Babylon at the time returned to Jerusalem. But not all of them. Actually, many of them stayed in Babylon. Even many of them moved into Persia, to the capital of Persia, to the citadel of Susa. And so we fast forward a couple generations, and we find ourselves in the 480s. So 
roughly 100 years after Israel, or Judah, I should say, was initially exiled, they're now, many Jews are now living in Persia. Xerxes is on the throne. Yes, Xerxes from, if you've ever seen 300 or know anything about Greek history, the Xerxes who tried to invade, uh, invade Greece. That guy. Now, the movie 300 is not very accurate to kind of history or the way Xerxes was, but Xerxes is on the throne. We're going to see him in the scriptures. The Hebrew name for him is Ahasuerus. So uh, I'll have to say that a lot today and over the series, Ahasuerus. Hopefully I don't screw it up. But this setting of this book is asking us the question, where is God? He's not mentioned. God's people aren't living in the land that he promised to them. They're not communing with him. So where is God? Where is he in the midst of heartbreak and suffering? And we're going to even see in this book that the entire Jewish race is threatened. God's people are threatened with, an annihil- with annihilation. The book kind of has this downward descent into tragedy, but then it, things are reversed and it begins to go upward. The book as a whole is full of irony and satire. It's actually a pretty funny book, and I'll try to uncover that as we go. But the book as a whole is saying, how is God going to care for his people when they aren't home and he seemingly isn't present? Does that sound familiar to where we are? I hope it does. How ought they to live in light of what God is doing? The book also speaks to that, and so it will speak to us in that regard as well. Now, what we're going to see today, we're going to be covering the ma- most of the introduction of Esther, the main introduction, and that's chapters 1 through 2. We're going to see most of that. We'll finish up chapter two, the rest of chapter 2 next week. And, and these first two chapters are setting the stage for the main conflict that comes in chapter 3. So we're not even going to get into the main uh-oh part of the book until a couple weeks from now. But we are going to be looking at some of the main themes that show up in the first couple of chapters because they run through the rest of the book. And today, we're really going to be seeing the question of who is in control. Who's in control? Hence the, the title for today. Who's in control? Obviously, the answer is not you. (laughs) Not you, not me. But I do want us to ask ourselves the question, how do we react when life happens to us and we have little say in the matter? How are we going to react? Because we yearn for control, right? Don't Don't we believe that if I could just dictate what happens to me, then things wouldn't be so bad? I I certainly believe that. That's why I get frustrated when things happen to me that I'm like, that shouldn't have happened. And today we're going to see that things are outside of our control and how do we respond? Now at the bottom of your worship order, I have a phrase. It's the big idea. I'm going to give this to you right here at the beginning because I want you to be tracing it as we walk through. And so the thing you see at the bottom of your worship order is this. In light of God's control, respond faithfully and favorably to seeming misfortune. That's what I want us to see today. Respond faithfully and favorably to seeming misfortune. Why? Because God is in control. That's where we're going today, so no surprises. Uh, But that's that's the heart. Okay, that's a longer introduction than normal, but let me pray, and we're going to dive in. Father, we love you. Help us to hear from you this morning as we read your word. Thank you for the gift of your word, and give us ears to hear and hearts that yearn to be transformed. Do your work in our lives, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 
By the way, I didn't read at the beginning because we are reading a lot, and so uh, there's just simply not time for it. We're going to be reading as we go, uh, as I, uh, we're going to read, and I'm going to unpack it kind of throughout the sermon today. But I'm going to start off with our first point before we even open, because I want you to be looking for this. Power and wealth only give the illusion of control. Power and wealth only give the illusion of control. I think intuitively, well, maybe not intuitively, maybe intellectually, we know this is true, but intuitively, we tend to believe that it's, that it's true, or believe that this isn't true. We, we think power and wealth are going to bring control, but they don't. So, let's dive into the scriptures themselves and see how the book of Esther unfolds this, or just unfolds. All right, starting in verse 1, chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, so we got this guy, Ahasuerus. This is Xerxes, the historical Xerxes that you may be familiar with. And he is the king of Persia. Persia was the most dominant empire of its day. It was the superpower. So this is the king of it all. The most powerful man in the world. And he has it all. He's giving this feast, and he's wanting people to drink freely. He even has this statement of, there is no compulsion. Well, usually in their culture, you would wait for the king to drink before you drink as a sign of honor. <clears throat> and here we have, well, no, just everybody drink. It's a big party. Not only that, but the biblical author goes to great efforts to describe the, the opulence of it all. He kind of describes kind of the curtains and the floor and, you know, these golden couches and all that kind of stuff. That's actually really rare for biblical narrative. Biblical narrative is not big on imagery. If you read, most of the plot and everything that happens is driven forward by just narration about what happens. Here, we get all sorts of just abundant pictures of what's going on. So the author is drawing our attention to the opulence of it saying, look at how extravagant all of this is. This guy's got everything. He's throwing a party that lasts 180 days, half the year. And then he throws another party that lasts seven days because 180 wasn't enough. So Ahasuerus has it all. He is the most powerful man in the world. 
Let's keep going, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Meshuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha and Abagatha, or Abagtha, excuse me, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So we get Vashti, his queen, saying, no. I'm not going to come and be paraded around because I'm beautiful. Not only this, remember, the people that he's brought here are everyone, both, uh, both the, the, the small and the great, all of society. And she says, no, I will not do that. The most powerful man in the world. He's got a marital dispute. He has no control whatsoever over Vashti. And the author of Esther is kind of poking at this and saying, yeah, look at this. This guy doesn't even know how to ask his wife to come to the party. What a buffoon. He flies off the handle. He has no control over Vashti. He has no control over his emotions. And ultimately, he has no control over the circumstances. He wanted this big, pompous affair. He sends his eunuchs to go get his queen. She's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to be paraded around, and good for her. Ahasuerus has no true control. Verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be known, made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right. This was a big section. And you look at it and you're like, what in the world is going on? This is supposed to sound extremely stupid. And it is. You may look at this and be like, okay, this guy, 
was upset because his wife wouldn't come. And now the punishment for her not coming is now she's not going to come. You didn't come before me, so you're never going to come before me. Not only that, who's giving this advice? These are the wise men who know the times. And it's sheer lunacy. He's, he's basically shamed because she didn't come. And so instead of just the people who were there now knowing about it, the whole kingdom is going to know about it. All because he just wants control. He makes himself out to be a complete fool. Even the names of the advisors in Hebrew are supposed to sound silly. Like you hear these names, and they, they don't hear it funny to us. We're kind of like, that just sounds weird. But to them, they'd be like, well, that's a dumb name. And so there's, these guys are clowns. Clowns. Box hates it when I use that word. It's just for you. So here we go. We have this buffoon king with clown advisors taking a personal matter and using the entire weight of the Persian political system to try and get his way. And it's also just kind of silly because it's like you can't make a decree that's going to make wives do what their husbands want. I mean, everybody knows that. Like, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> like, yeah, we know. We know. Readers would know too. They kind of would look at this decree and be like, oh boy, <laughs> what's this guy doing? What is this guy doing? This is satire. Okay? It's, it's totally true, but the author is presenting it in a way that's like, yeah, this is dumb. Let the reader understand. For us, when we see this completely ridiculous response, it needs to drive us to say, oh yeah, this is kind of how silly we get when we start trying to control the things around us. That doesn't mean that God hasn't entrusted us with responsibility and things that we do control, but when we think that somehow we can order everything in our lives so that it all works out in our favor and that no one defies us, we look like fools, just like Ahasuerus. The world around us tells us Hey, get power, get influence. These will solve all of your problems. But they won't. Esther starts with a stark warning that power and wealth only give the illusion of control. They only give the illusion of control. Because throughout the whole book, we're going to see who's in control of the situation. It's not the king, it's not the villain Haman, it's not Mordecai. And it's not really even Esther. Nobody's really in control. Except the one who's not mentioned. God himself. Let's keep going. Here's our second point. Evil and foolishness outside our control will happen to God's people. Evil and foolishness outside our control will happen to God's people. We often want to con have control to keep evil and foolishness from happening to us. But the truth is, is it will happen. It will happen, and we need to be reminded of that. Because if we start living under the lie that somehow we're going to escape evil and foolishness in this world, then we're going to get ourselves into a load of trouble as a church. Evil and foolishness will happen to us. So let's see this in the text. Starting in chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who, ple- woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, at the very end of this, this idea of pleasing the king. That showed up earlier when first that decree that he sent out, it's like, oh yeah, I like this idea. It pleases me. It got mentioned there, and here we again have this idea of pleasing. This comes up several times in this introduction, and it's one of the themes that the author is drawing our attention to, this idea of pleasing. The words are literally to be good for your two eyes. It's pleasing, good for your two eyes. The idea of even seeing is prominent. We remember Vashti was lovely to look at. We're going to see later. Esther is also also lovely to look at. There's a play on the idea of eyes. This is pleasing. It's good in his sight. So hold on to that. Now this plan that he and his young men, notice now he's not even going to the wise men. Who does he go to? The young men. And what plan do they come up with? This one. The type of plan that a bunch of terrible wicked, evil young men might come up with. It's wicked specifically because he's essentially abducting and raping young women. This is a tragic part of the story, and I don't want to just brush over it. The author doesn't give us much comment on this, but just presents it as a reality and says, here this is. Look at how wicked and evil this is. Look at this king who is doing this. He's abducting and raping young women. They don't have any choice in the matter. We're going to see kind of a process that he uses to even find out which queen he wants is even more wicked. It's not just wicked, it's dumb. Instead of looking to expand his political power through a strategic marriage with maybe a powerful family, now he's like, I'm just going to try to find somebody that's beautiful and pleases me in bed. Those are the two requirements for queen of his kingdom. What kind of a guy is this? We're supposed to be scratching our heads and being like, this is the king? Oof. And we're going to see he allows later for just the suggestion to be made that a genocide happens, and he's like, okay. We're not going to see that today in a couple of weeks. But goodness gracious, he's wicked and dumb. So both evil and foolishness are going to happen. So let's keep reading. We're introduced now to two of our main characters in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. So here, two of our main characters of the book, Mordecai and Esther, are introduced. The only thing really we learn about Mordecai is that he's a Jew, and Esther, that she's beautiful, lovely to look at. 
what's shared, what's, what's in common by both of these people, by Mordecai and Esther? Well, the author points us to two very particular things. It's the idea of being carried away. Mordecai, three times in verse 6, you'll see it here, three times in this verse alone, in one sentence, carried away from Jerusalem. He's among the captives who were carried away uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried them away. So there's an emphasis here that they are being carried away. This is something happening to them. They're carried away. Now, Mordecai's ancestors were taken away because they were part of God's people. It was God's wrath on them, but ultimately it wasn't necessarily everybody who was carried away was, was guilty and was evil, but it was just because they were God's people. They were ethnically part of the Jewish people, and so they get carried away. Esther, too, is taken. She has no control over the situation. She's a beautiful, young virgin, and so King Ahasuerus' decree goes out, and she's taken. The verbiage here is all passive. They have no control. Evil just happens to both of them. So again, evil and foolishness outside our control will happen to God's people. What will our response to this evil be? Control is just an illusion. Our culture speaks differently and says that we need to avoid tragedy at all costs. Don't don't let anything bad happen to you, ever. Don't have no agency. There's a double negative there. You need to have agency. Be master of your own fate. Hurt those who hurt you. Those are the things that our culture presents to us. And this is not to say that, again, we don't take stewardship and that we don't fight evil, but we should not be foolish enough to think that we will escape it always because it's out there. And it will happen. So finally, we get to our third point. Despite much evil being out of our control, we are in control of our response. Despite much evil being out of our control, we are in control of our response. Now, I want to pause here and acknowledge that for many in our church, in our congregation, there has been tremendous wickedness done to you. And what I am saying now is not... This, this is, I am not saying that in all circumstances and at all times that we're just supposed to roll over and let wickedness be done. That is not my point today, so please do not take me saying that. But what I do want to say is what is my posture going to be towards the wicked people around me? And am I going to have a heart that says, I'm going to love you anyways? That doesn't mean that you trust them. That doesn't mean that you put yourself back in a place where you're supposed to be hurt. If you have experienced abuse at the hands of someone else, I am not saying that you just take it, okay? Please hear me. As a pastor, I am not saying that. But do I have a heart that wishes the good for the other person? And that may be, their, their good may be you leaving to be out from under their control so that they can be confronted and have the healing that they need. I want to be very clear about that. I am not justifying abuse. Okay, But we do need to recognize that we are in control of our response. That is something that we have control other, over. So let's keep going in verse 9. Let's see this in the text. And the young woman, that's Esther, pleased, there's that word again, him, Haggai, he's, he, she pleased Haggai and won his favor. 
And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Here, something in the language shifts, something in the passage, the, the, the language shifts here. Things were happening to Esther and Mordecai, but now all of a sudden we get these active verbs. Esther is winning favor. She's seeking to please. And this continues. We're going to see it here again in a minute. She's becoming active. She's responding a particular way. Now, one note, she is hiding her identity. Is that good or bad? Commentators are split. I would say that actually this is probably supposed to be a bad thing, that she's not being open about Jewish identity. She obviously is not doing the, the dietary laws because she's eating what they're giving her. And she's not publicly identifying with the people of God. God's people, one of their defining characteristics were that, was that they were supposed to be different from the rest of the world. And here we have the fact that she's hiding. Now, I share that because I think Esther, of all the characters in the book, is really the only character that actually has a real character arc. That is, she grows. She it starts one way and then ends up another. She becomes bold and is the reason why God's people are ultimately saved. So I think this is part of that story. It also explains kind of how the conflict can even happen. <clears throat> but I think it can also be encouraging for us. Because you may be sitting here, and you may know the story of Esther and how she boldly stands up. And you may look at your own life and say, I'm not bold. I have been so ashamed of my faith. And there have been so many times where I could have opened my mouth and talked about Christ, and I didn't. And I say, God has mercy and grace. And he can take anyone, even a young girl who is hiding her Jewish identity, and he can use her for his glory and to rescue his people. So it does not matter where you have been, where you have come from, what problems you have had, God can still use you. So Christian, take heart. He can use you despite past timidity. So let's see what happens with Esther. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. By the way, this is another example of opulence. It's like King Ahasuerus is having them take 12 months to get ready. Like, you know, you thought, you know, husbands, like, oh, my wife, you know, she takes, you know, a longer time than I thought would be necessary to get ready. And here we have the king being like, hey, take a whole year. It's like, so the author is again kind of saying, look at this guy. Like, this is, this is nuts. Okay. Verse 13. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Here we hit one of the lows of the whole story, because this is tragic and sad. One of the ways that women had value in this particular culture was by bearing children and uh, marrying into a family. And here we have women being used. They get one night with the king, and if he delights in her, well, then she gets to marry into a powerful family. She gets to be the queen. She's taken care of. 
her heir, her child, will be the next to sit on the throne. Of course, this is still sad because it happens under the context of rape. And I hate to say that there's a silver lining, but there is one of these options that is better than the other, and it's that one. That's the better option of two terrible options. The terrible, most terrible option is you're used up and you go to the second harem where you will never find a husband because you have been with the king. No other man will ever get you. That's why eunuchs were in charge of that. So you'll have no husband, no family, no heirs. You will be a part of a shunned, kind of just secluded part of society. These are awful arrangements to be in. This is what is in front of Esther. This is her future. One of these two things. God, where are you? This would be a good time for deliverance for Esther, would it not? Lord, can you arrange for her to have a dramatic escape? But no, that's not what she receives. Esther does not get an escape. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We started with a feast and we end with a feast. And again, despite much evil being out of our control, we are in control of our response. We see this specifically in the life of Esther because what was her response? One, she's faithful. She's faithful specifically to win favor. She is active in winning favor. She's faithful in the sense that she doesn't just sit back and say, woe is me, my life is terrible, I'm going to be raped. But instead she says, how can I seek to bless? I've, I, she's earning the favor of Haggai. She somehow earns the favor of the king. This buffoon, this wicked man, this guy. So it's not just that she is beautiful and lovely to look at. She says, I'm going to take steps to be a blessing. Favor specifically means that she's not looking to curse She's looking to bless. And the author of Esther is really making a point of this. He really emphasizes this heavily, that her behavior is not what you would expect. It's not what you would expect. And the result, God is going to rescue his people through her. Despite this being a bad situation, God is using her and using the situation. We are told to hurt those who hurt you. Hurt those who hurt you. It gives you a sense of control. But this idea ultimately is rooted in seeing all the bad things that happen to us as having no good reason. Why is there evil in the world? 
That's one of the claims of the atheists against us. How can you have a fully good God who's all-powerful and yet there is evil? That argument supposes that there could be no good reason beyond what we would know that God would allow evil. It assumes that we have all knowledge if we make that argument. It also assumes that evil is real because the flip side of it, if you reject the reality of evil and the reality of God, well, then you are stuck with the fact that there's just things that are uncomfortable. There's no real evil. But God says there is indeed evil. This is indeed evil. But He is redeeming it. He is redeeming evil. What's the cross? It's evil. Yet it is the perfect example. It's the prime example. It's not just an example. It is the vehicle of God's grace. Without it, we don't have God's grace. And so here, we have Esther again showing us our response. And it's not a response that God has not done Himself because Jesus did this exact thing on the cross. Now, you may be wondering, how do I live faithfully and favorably? It's one thing to stand up here and say, in the face of evil, live favorably, faithfully and favorably. And I also know that some of you are in the thick of really difficult things. And I don't even share this now as necessarily to say, this is how you get out of it. I share this ultimately for those of us who are not in difficult things right now to prepare our hearts for when those difficult things come. But how do we live faithfully and favorably? First, we have to realize that He is actually in control. Now, the text does not tell us this in this passage, but we're going to see by the end of the story, yes, God is in control. So I'm not going out of the text to find that. And similarly related to this, God is in control, but He's also working redemptively. So I need to realize that He's in control, and I need to expect His redemptive work. When evil happens to me, when foolishness happens to me, I need to expect that God is going to work redemptively through that. And it may not be for my redemption. It may be for someone else's. All of God's people benefited from Esther's tragedy. You may not get to experience the goodness of God's redemption in the evil in your life. It may be for someone else. But that's a joy of getting to be a part of God's family. And remember, God himself is not a stranger to redemptive suffering. Christ suffered redemptively. His response to humiliation was to turn the other cheek and to be crucified. He was tortured and killed for you and for me. Everything that Esther goes through, Jesus Christ goes through worse. So again, kind of circling through it all. In light of God's control, respond faithfully and favorably to seeming misfortune. Respond faithfully and favorably to seeming misfortune. Church, power and wealth will not save you. That evil and misfortune, foolishness, it's going to come. It will happen but you're in control of your response. So what will your response be in light of your lack of control? Let's respond faithfully and favorably to seeming misfortune. Let me pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are redeeming our suffering and that our suffering is not meaningless. Help us to respond with grace and mercy to the people around us. May we respond in that way because you moved towards us when we rejected you. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, for our sins. Lord, we deserve death and suffering, but you have given us life. You took on our death and suffering, Jesus, because of your great love. May we remember that, and may we live accordingly. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.